Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study through the Lord's ministry. Mark chapter 8 verses 22 through 26, we look today at a blind man healed near Bethsaida. And of course, uh, we've got our map out here of the Lord's pathway, and Bethsaida's just up here, just north of the Sea of Galilee. Mark 8, verses 22 through 26 says, And he, Jesus, cometh to Bethsaida, or some pronounce it Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hand upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees, walking. After that he put his hands again upon his eyes, and made him look up. And he was restored, and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to continue this study, and what a blessing it has been. We ask, Father, as you have see fit, Lord, to prepare our hearts for the subjects ahead, Lord, as we know that he will begin to talk about his crucifixion. He will begin to talk about the literal purpose to... Uh, to his physical presence and his physical ministry, Lord, and we just ask your blessings upon us as uh, some of those will no doubt be difficult and hard lessons to go through. We ask, Father, your blessings upon us as we do this study, that each and every <clears throat> person who's followed along with us, and maybe today's their first day, uh, that they would give diligence to reading this text and understanding the context and understanding uh, those things mentioned, that we would give diligence to studying these things out and writing it upon our hearts, that we would indeed understand and truly uh, feel that we have followed the ministry of Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity for this recorded word that we know as of this morning uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16 is profitable unto us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second of two miracles recorded only by Mark. The other was the healing of the deaf mute that we saw back in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. In both instances, Jesus took the person away from the crowd, and he took him out of the town. The purpose, just as last time, was to avoid publicity. This is the only, this miracle here with the, Beth, the, with the blind man is the only gradual miracle recorded in the four Gospels. Was the miracle hindered by the atmosphere of unbelief in town? Is that why the Lord gave such credence to taking him away from such things? We even see in the last verse uh, two encouragements to not go into town and not tell any in the town. So is that the reason for the gradual miracle? Mark 6, 5 says, And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. According to the gospel record, Jesus healed at least seven blind men, and each time the approach was different. I didn't realize that until I put this, these notes together, that each approach was different. And of course, we talked about uh, Bartimaeus in a, in a previous lesson, uh, but this one is very different. I think this is probably the one most people know to be most different. Uh, and, and is it because of the involvement? Is it because of the, the spitting it's hard to tell, but I think this is probably the one that most would reference to be one of the, the more bizarre methods in which one who is able to heal and return sight chooses to do so. The very first point I want to make here is that we note in our 
text here, the bringing in of the sheaves. And is that the first time that we've seen these being brought unto him, Mark 7, 32, referencing that deaf mute that only Mark covers, just as an example, is said there, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. It is good that those be brought to Jesus, that those who are sick be brought to the great physician. As referenced above, it's not the first time one was brought to Jesus. And oh, what a blessing it can be found there. Every time. Should we not all also go out to the field seeking for those who need to be brought to the master? Consider John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that, repe uh, that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their houses. We are all called to bring them in, to bring in the sheaves, to bring them to Jesus. This is the commission, is to teach all things that he had taught, to walk the path that he had walked, to point to Jesus in every opportunity. And as the Lord described there, we, we know things to be seasonal, that there's a harvest period right now, but there'll be a planting again in the spring. We don't know that for certain. But history has shown that that's how it is year after year after year. Uh, if, if the rapture should be tomorrow, there won't be a sowing next spring. But in regards to the sovereign calendar, it really begins and it ends as far as this life. And the Lord pointed out 2,000 years ago that the fields are white for harvest. And the fields are still white for harvest. They weren't replanted. They're still white for harvest. The laborers are few. The men are called to go. We, born-again believers, are called to go out into the fields because there's work to be done. Indeed, there is a greater work to be done than can be maintained by such a feeble few. We see here just a small portion of the Lord's church, and yet countless individuals bringing in the sick, bringing in them that need to be healed. One thing I'd like to point out is that we're never really told who the they are. Sometimes it might have been other disciples. It might have been others who had been following the Lord. But there are other occasions, such as I believe with the deaf and, and the mute man, in which those that brought him in may not have been saved. They trusted in the miracles. They trusted there could be a healing. But the lost were outworking the saved. They were bringing in the harvest. Is the Lord above using such means? Should we not feel conviction over the fact that the lost seem to have more faith than the saved here? That the lost are more faithful to bring in those that need a healing? We should be ever busy leaving nothing in reserves, for lives are on the line. And there is a great healing to which the Father has promised to do in and through the Son. Matthew Henry wrote, Here is a blind man brought to Christ by his friends. Therein appeared the faith of those that brought him. It is what James speaks of as far as faith in works, or faith of works rather, and that they acted on faith, brought the sick to the great physician. The second thing to consider here is, the beseech, is, is that they were beseeching the touch of the great physician. They weren't simply bringing one to be taught, bringing one to be uh, 
scripturally fed, one to literally be led around the map behind me. They were seeking the touch of the great physician. Remember the woman with the issue of blood. If I could but touch the hem of his garment, I could be made whole. And how it's repeated as a chant unto herself, as a, as a motivation of such to keep pressing through the throng, pressing through the crowd, pressing towards Jesus. Do we press towards Jesus? Do our actions show that he is the final destination, that he is the target, that all of our efforts are bringing us and those with us toward him? Or do we bring uh, such energy and such uh, drive on Sundays and not throughout the remainder of the week. We're going to be tempted on every, every corner and every turn in life to abstain from all appearances of good. Do we give in? Do we give in to abstaining from all appearances of Christianity, from all appearances of Christ Jesus? Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, Jesus speaks to his role as the physician. He says, They that be whole need not a physician but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If the hem of his garment can make us whole, which is a, a picture of faith, to what extent could his attentive touch avail? Something to think about. Something to meditate on this week. If the hem of his garment could make us whole, if that much faith could make us whole, to what extent could his attentive touch avail? You know, we see this blind man here and his sight's restored. But let's look at it from a different standpoint. He was a blind man before, hanging out with blind guys, hanging out in blind groups on the internet, hanging out in blind clubs because he wasn't welcome in seeing clubs. But now he sees. This changed his entire life. He no longer could a seeing man go to all these blind clubs and hang out with all these blind people. He's now a whole different social class. He's no longer unclean, unclean. He's made whole. Yeah, I'm playing around with the whole blind club thing. You understand that. But understand that his whole life changed. It's not like he had a cold and the Lord removed the cold. He could not see and now he could. The lame man could not walk but now could leap about. With a lifetime of legs he couldn't use, he suddenly not only has legs that could move, but he has musculature in those legs that can instantly respond to the beck and call of the brain to leap about. He's forever changed. He's not going to forget what it was like. He's not going to forget that that was part of himself. But he's not the same person anymore. You sure you're saved? Because that's how it ought to be for us. We're not the same people we were before. We were blind before. Let me put it to you a different way. You were dead before. You were like Lazarus, bound inside that cave with the, with the rock rolled in front of it. You could not move, not because you were restrained, but because you absolutely could do nothing. You couldn't breathe. You couldn't moan. You couldn't call for help. You had no desire to. Your natural state was dead. Your body cold. Those who loved him best described it this way. Lord, he stinketh. He was dead. But then one day, in the minds of men, four days late, Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, the Son of God, 
comes to the tomb and says, remove the rock. Lazarus, come forth. Oh, but preacher, it's because they removed the rock. He could hear. Mm -mm. Oh, but preacher, it's because the, the daylight came in and gave him oxygen. This ain't Clark Kent. This is a dead man. He could do nothing. You know what else he couldn't do? He couldn't hear. He couldn't see. He couldn't walk. He couldn't leap about. He was dead. And then the Lord says, Lazarus, come forth. There wasn't anything he couldn't do now. He came forth. What was impossible, what was not in his nature, what was not in his capacity, was suddenly as, as possible as any man as far as walking and coming forth. Now he's got a, a whole different depth as far as what he's able to do now, but he could do nothing before because he was dead. The very next chapter, as we, we referenced this morning, he had a place at the supper table. He had a front row seat to Judas throwing a fit. He was right there with the church. Once dead. I wonder how many times he told that story. I was once dead, you know. But this guy here, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one my sister sought after, believing that he could. And at the other end, past the limitation of their faith, was my resurrection. She, his sister said, if you were here, Lord, if you were here, Lord, you could have healed him. But Jesus wasn't looking to heal sickness, was he? Jesus was conquering death. If you were here, that was the extent of their faith. Of course you could make them healthy. They believed it. Jesus, where do you see this? You believe that? Lazarus, come forth. I wonder if he ever didn't smile again after that. He couldn't smile at all when he was dead. But now that he's alive, he probably smiled a little bit more. I'm with Jesus t-shirts in the closet, sitting at the supper table, sharing a meal with he whom he worshipped, whom he loved, whom first loved him. His life was never the same. Are you sure you're saved? Are you absolutely certain that this change has happened in your life? If so, what doth hinder you? Why do you not run a race like Lazarus? Why do you not leap about as the lame man? More specific to the topic, why do you not see as this blind man was now able to? We put up blinders sometimes, don't we? We choose that which we're going to allow to be a part of our Christian walk. We choose, mistakenly thinking we have the choice, to what depth we will serve the Master. If you're a true servant of Christ, you don't have a choice as to what level you will serve the Master. You will serve the Master. You will go where He bids you go. You will do what he bids you do. You will say what he bids you say. We're called to bring in the sheaves, but can we also labor in prayer that his hands might be upon them? That more than just touching the garment and being made whole, they might be changed forever. They might be restored to new life, not just that old lame life they had before where they were destined to die. 
where surgically removed stony hearts now sit upon a shelf while a new heart of flesh is put in, a heart of feeling, a heart of compassion, a heart of service. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, uh, Paul speaking, let this mind be in you. It means think like this, is what Paul's saying. Which was also in Christ Jesus. We're about to have a, 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 a showing of the mind of Jesus, the thought process of Jesus. Paul is about to tell the church of Philippi and us here today how Jesus thought. Listen to this. Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. We're going to see this in the attributes of God study, so I won't dwell on it too long. But these two things ought to be in us too. He made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant. If you're born again, that's to be you. What good is a reputation to you now? You know what reputation this guy had? There's no name. The blind man of Bethsaida. That was his previous reputation. That was how people knew him. Remember the blind guy? That may be how you've referred to this miracle in the past. Remember the blind guy Jesus spat on? Quite the reputation, isn't it? The blind guy, the mute guy, the deaf guy, the lame guy. Bartimaeus at least had a name. Listen, beloved, we are to have no reputation. We are to take on the form of a servant because our giving the gospel to the world is a service we are called to do. If you don't know how to live like a servant, there's no way you've ever given the gospel to a lost soul. Because it takes none of yourself. It is literally you standing before somebody and saying, I was saved and I had nothing to do with it. Can we do that? Can we empty ourselves of reputation and truly stand before somebody and say, everything about me was made possible by God? Not that he put it in front of me and I ran toward it, but God made me this because here was where I was going. Here's the path that I was on, the track that I had laid out for myself. Utter failure, total consumption, and death. But then Jesus came. And for whatever reason I can't explain, God chose me before the foundation of the world, and Jesus saved me. It turns out when he said, it is finished, he was talking about the salvation of my soul. And instead of being on this path, I'm now on this one. And that's why I stand before you and give you the gospel. Not because I get anything out of it, and not because I have anything to brag of or boast of, but because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He goes on there to say that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Can we be obedient to do daily devotions? Can we be obedient to just read a verse of the Bible each day? We struggle, don't we? But Jesus came from the kingdom and made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was obedient unto death, and not just any death, but a shameful death upon the cross, a public humiliation. He did that for me. You sure you're saved? 
You sure you're a Christian, that you're Christ-like? This is the propitiation. This is Christ Jesus. He's not that little fish sticker that you see on the back of somebody's cart. He's not waiting to take the wheel. He's not some passive God waiting for December 25th to come around so you'll remember him and try to put him back into the season. He is God always. He is God every day. He is God since the beginning and past the ending. The Alpha, the Omega, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, through and through. My intercessor, my mediator, my propitiation, my savior, my master. I can't hold a reputation compared to him. I have nothing to hold when it comes to him. Steve and I were talking a little bit about the, the judgment seat during the break, and I had presented it to Olmstead like this, at the judgment seat, when we were, are not going to be able to lie, we'll be utterly compelled to tell the truth. The only thing you're going to be able to say is Christ Jesus. There's nothing else. I mean, what, what would you add to it? I chose him. You didn't. I made him. No, you sure didn't. I allowed him laughable, Christ Jesus. And the judge will say, sin's paid in full. He's one of mine. And if you don't know him, you'll be left with no excuse. You will stand at that judgment. And I doubt you'd even be able to utter his name. And here's why. The scripture says, he will tell you, depart from me. I never knew thee. You won't be able to say his name because you don't know him. You might know of him. You might know a shadow. You might know of this Messiah the Jews are still waiting to come. But you won't know Christ Jesus, lest you be born again. Matthew Henry also wrote, If those who are spiritually blind do not pray for themselves, yet their friends and relations should pray for them, that Christ would be pleased to touch them. The last point we have here for this afternoon is that the blind was made to see. Mark 8, verses 23 through 25 of our text says, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. We've got to make sure we line the doctrine up here. Everything that we know of Christ Jesus from the Bible is still absolutely true. So when the Lord led him out of town and asked him uh, after, after you know, spitting on his eyes, putting his hands upon him, if he saw aught, did Jesus know if he could see? He sure did. I want you to put yourselves in the mindset of this blind man who was taken to this man he didn't know and then led back out of town by this man he didn't know. And he's following there are so many things here that, that are paralleled throughout scriptures. Uh, I think of Saul, who's not in my notes, but I think of Saul. What happened to him on Damascus Road? As he was dropped to the dirt, as Jesus said, it's hard to kick against the pricks. Why hast thou persecutest thou me? He's hearing a voice that others can't make any sense of, that others don't see, others can't perceive, and he's left blind. And he's led by the hand to the one who would teach him. This man had to be led. Jesus led him out of town. For those who are here and lost, you probably think, boy, the pastor beats up on us constantly. Listen to the mercy of Jesus. This one who was blind was taken by the hand of Christ Jesus and led out of town.
Is there any more compassionate description of who Jesus is? You might say, well, he heals him later, so therefore he knew him. Yeah, but you don't know what it's like to be God. And I don't perceive to ask you to think about what it's like to be God. Think of yourself as this blind man. This blind man was taken by the hand by the great physician, was led out of town where he could more intimately be spoken to, more personally be addressed. Boy, Baptist, we ought to learn something from that too. This Jesus took a blind man and led him by the hand. Why would he do that? Did he not have servants, disciples, for which could have done that? The, the twice, two times that we've seen the miraculous feedings, Jesus did the miracles, but didn't he have the disciples, the church, do the administering? Couldn't he have had the disciples bring this man out of town and say, I'll meet you there? Jesus took him personally by the hand and led him out of town. I love that phrase, by the hand. There's something there that I, I can't quite get below the surface of. Something there that maybe we need to just pray over this week and have the Lord reveal to us. He took this man by the hand. Maybe you're here and you don't know him. This one took a blind man by the hand. You're not out of his reach. You are in the right place. Maybe you don't have him yet. Keep coming. Keep feeding. Keep searching. Keep longing. Keep praying. Keep asking for prayer. Moms, don't give up on those, those lost kids. Don't give up on those who refuse to attend. Keep pointing them to Christ Jesus. They're adults. So what? This man could have been a, an aged man. We don't know. And Jesus took him by the hand. The, the malefactor on the cross, he had but, but minutes, maybe hours left. And he joined the Lord in paradise. They are still breathing. They are still within his reach. And he takes sinners by the hand. Praise God. Christ showed in what method those commonly are healed by his grace who by nature are spiritually blind. At first their knowledge is confused. But like the light of morning it shines more and more to the perfect day and then they see all things clearly. It can only happen by his speed and on his time. It's not something a preacher can speed along. It's not something mom and dad can speed along. It's all in his time. This reminds me of what we see of the nation of Israel as they first approach the promised land. Turn over to Numbers, if you would, as we seek to close. They elected to send scouts into that promised land, didn't they? Joshua and Caleb were of those scouts going into the promised land. Can you imagine the excitement We'll teach it more when we get there. But the excitement for Joshua and Caleb, who are revealed to be of faith, who are revealed to trust that this is the promised land, that it is theirs for the claiming, they're of the first dozen men to go in and see what this land looks like. The sweet fruit, that corn, all the promises fulfilled that the Lord had made concerning this land. They were going to have it. It's right there. In Numbers 14, verses 7 through 9, we read the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. This is how Jesus is able to give. This is how God is able to give. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us. 
This is Caleb and Joshua's viewpoint of it. A land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. What a way to look at the enemy. What a way to look at what's in the way. They are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Is this not how David looked at Goliath? He can't even carry his own shield. And Goliath says, I come in the name of the Lord. He's on my side. You don't stand a chance. What a Gamaliel and Acts. If this work be of God, you, you're fighting against God himself. If it not be, it's for naught. The rest of the nation, however, remain blind, seeing men as trees. Numbers 13, verses 31 through 33. We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature, men as trees. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. I imagine Joshua and Caleb had to be like, what? We went together. How did you see that? They are bred to us. We are not grasshoppers to them. That is our land. Let us go forth and claim it. Let us fear them not. While the others said, oh, we couldn't possibly. That's not going to be a land for us. They said the land eateth up the inhabitants. They talked toxically about the land that was literally promised to them. Numbers 14, verses 2 through 4. Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. You know, throughout all the history of man, he has always been real quick to use wives and children as an excuse to be a wimp, as an excuse to not be a man himself. He points to his wives and children. How could you do this, Adam? Eve, that you gave me. You did it. She did it. One of you. you I tell you what, Lord, you and Eve, you go work it out, but it's your faults, not mine. What a coward. That's our great-granddaddy. What are these? Should our wives and children be his prey? Man up! This is the promised land. Go claim it. They will be his prey because you're a coward. You're going to walk in the wilderness and die, and your children are going to come back and take this land. That's what happened. This is the conclusion of the matter. They saw men as trees instead of seeing the promised land. Go back tonight and read Numbers 13, 31 through 33, how Joshua and Caleb described the land compared to Numbers 14, or, or rather, Numbers 14, verses 7 through 9, compared to Numbers 13, 31 through 33. Just read both chapters, really, uh, instead of trying to remember all that. And then Numbers 14, 10. All the congregation bade stone with stones. They made up their minds that Moses and Aaron had to die. That Moses and Aaron had failed them. 
had let them down. Now, this wasn't their response when Aaron fed the fire, the gold, and made the golden calf. They didn't say, Aaron misled us. Aaron made a, a fake idol, an idol that we shouldn't have anything to do with. Get the stones, boys. He's going down. Nope. And this isn't how they treated Korah. When Korah said he didn't believe, the multitude followed after him right into the earth. They didn't say, we've been misled. Get the stones. Get rid of Korah. And time and time and time, time would not even allow us to give the examples fully that the Bible gives us of how the congregation would follow after man before following after God. If they had followed after God, they wouldn't have sent scouts. God didn't tell them to. He permitted it. He didn't tell them to send scouts. Why would God need to send scouts? That's the land prepared for them. That land was as good and ready as it was when Abraham was sent there. God knew what he was doing. God knew. Man didn't. In today's text, we read that after he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up and he was restored and saw every man clearly. In much the same way, the Lord never removed his hands from upon the nation of Israel. We could say they deserved it. We could say that he should have, that he should have given up on them. How many times do we read of opportunities to do so? We even read once where the Lord, uh, as a type of test for Moses, said, I'm just going to wipe them out and start a new nation with you. But he didn't. They were led through the wilderness until that rebellious generation perished, all but Caleb and Joshua, and the one that followed was made able to see clearly, just like this blind man. How did the miracle work, you're going to want to ask me. Why did he have to spit on him, put his hands on him twice? I don't have answers for every mystery of the Lord's ministry. I'm going to have answers when I get to the kingdom. But I'm not going to speak to something I don't fully understand. But I can tell you right now, it's a type of disbelief. It always is. It pictures our lack of faith, not his lack of ability. I don't lean towards Mark 8 and say, well, he, just, he was losing some of it. Some of that sovereign power. He was a little less omni that day. God forbid. This was a lesson on faith. And our lack therein. So where does this find us? Are we also slighting Christ's favors? Forfeiting them? Or do we look to him? And do we take others to him? Do we trust that his worth will be found in his word? It won't be found in manipulation, in scare tactics, in bartering. If you led somebody to salvation, you're going to have to work awful hard to try and keep them there, and eventually you'll fail. They have to be saved of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we close with the very concept that he is one who will take his by the very hand. I don't know that there's anything sweeter than that. Let's close with a word of prayer.